Hello, Fight Fans. Welcome. It is Monday, April 3rd, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst. I am the host of this podcast. My name is Luke Thomas. You already know that. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Three parts to the podcast, as always. We talk as an overview about the weekend's action, take a look at something with some visual aids in the second segment, and then take a look at what's coming up ahead in the third segment. So, not a whole lot to get to today. I'll keep it nice and short. Just one real event of consequence over the weekend, Bellator 175 took place in uh, just outside Chicago, Illinois. So let's talk about that. All right, uh, this took place at the Allstate Arena in Rosemont, Illinois. Now, if you look on Wikipedia, there'll be some numbers. It'll have an attendance number and a gate number. I have been told that these numbers are often fake. So I do not wish to deliver fake news. I have not had the uh, commission in Illinois verify these, so I'm not going to read them to you. But just know that if you see numbers in Wikipedia, try to have them verified by a second, maybe even a third source, because I'm told they're often not real. Take that for what it's worth. Uh, I don't know who's putting them in there either. That's kind of weird. Um, okay, in the main event, Muhammad Wall taking on uh, Rampage Jackson. This was the rematch from Bellator 120, although originally that was a light heavyweight bout. This was a heavyweight bout. Everyone knew uh, at the weigh-ins, Muhammad Wall coming in at 212 pounds, which is really about as heavy as he's ever going to get. And then Rampage Jackson at a whopping 253. Now, he weighed in with jeans on, so let's say to 250 if we're being generous. But nevertheless, uh, quite heavy. He visually looked it. Um, and this was not his best showing. Here's the funny part about this, and I mentioned this on my post-fight show that I did on my own YouTube channel uh, after the fight immediately on Friday night. The weight that Quinton was carrying, I did not think would be an advantage to him, and I think that that's still somewhat true. But the problem with the weight he was carrying was that it, and this is the words I used originally, it depressed the entire fight. In other words, it not only didn't help Quinton perform up to what we have seen from him relative to his maximum standard. In addition, while I thought that the weight disparity would not be a help to Rampage, I thought in turn it will be a boost to Mo. And maybe in some ways it was, but in some ways it really wasn't. That extra weight with Rampage plus his takedown defense was not bad. It just made hard for Mo to do a whole lot. And so it had this negative effect generally on the fight's action. You had Rampage trying to counterfight to preserve his energy, having good, I would say, takedown defense against the cage, especially in that second and third round. And then ultimately, um, you know, Mo was able to have some success early and a little bit more late, especially with, with that really ill-advised shot from Rampage in that third round, which allowed Mo to get behind him and score the most significant offense of that round followed up with strikes as they separated. But it just really was not a great fight. Not a strong showing from Mo, unfortunately. Not a terrible showing from him. Again, I think he was I mean, he was fighting at a guy with a significant weight advantage who has really heavy hips and a and good takedown defense. How much can you really get out of something like that? So um I'm 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 mostly forgiving of it, but nevertheless can't say it was it was an awesome fight because it wasn't. By the way, the decision was twenty nine twenty eight across the board. I think Mo Pretty easily won the first round, had a couple of takedowns. Won the third round, in large part, I thought, because of what Rampage was doing, just making terrible decisions. Uh, Rampage having good takedown defense in the second round and, and landing a few hard shots, uh, rocking Mo at one point. Not, not terribly, but enough to notice, get the crowd behind him. It was a Rampage crowd, by the way, there in Chicago. It was a Rampage crowd when I saw him fight in Memphis. I think people still like Rampage. It's just that Rampage... You know, you can tell he's naturally talented, man. You know he's got heavy hips. He does have good wrestling. Um, it's, his wrestling has gotten actually better, his defensive wrestling anyway. Um, and, you know, people still like him. But 
if he doesn't want to train properly, I don't know what they're going to do with him, especially if he wants to fight in the UFC. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. Now, King Mo goes on to fight Ryan Bader at Bellator 180, which will be the spike portion of the NYC card at Madison Square Garden. So that's a tough fight for Mo. You saw how big Ryan Bader is. I mean, I remember the first time I saw Ryan Bader in the men's bathroom backstage at a UFC event. I was shocked by how big he was. He is a monstrous, monstrous light heavyweight. Mo is a very small light heavyweight. So it's going to be an interesting test to see how Ryan Bader does in that smaller circular cage. Um, but, you know, you saw in that Rashad fight, he was fleet of foot, able to land hard strikes and uh, get guys coming in uh, to press forward if he had to and exit out at an angle. So it's a tough fight for Mo. It's a really tough fight, but it's a good fight for Ryan Bader insofar as, you know, getting a win over a Bellator name is for, or potentially getting a win over his Bellator um uh, name a presence in the Bellator family on his Bellator debut. So that should be kind of interesting. That, of course, will be on June 24th. Emmanuel Sanchez defeating Marcus Galvan uh, by unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board at a catch weight of 149 pounds. What do you want to say about Emmanuel Sanchez? Listen to how, This is his record. Uh, he's 26 years old, so that's really the good side. But the bad side is this, this is his Bellator run. He submitted Stephen... Banashik, whoever this guy is, uh, in the first round of Bellator 128. That was all the way back in October of 2014. Then he defeated Alejandro Villalobos via decision. Then he lost to Pat Coran via decision. Then he split decision Henry Corrales. Then he split decision Justin Lawrence. Then he split decision Daniel Pineda. Then he lost to Daniel Weichel via split decision. Then he beat Georgi Karahanian via majority decision. And now he beats Loro, Marcus Galvan, a unanimous decision. Um, boy, that's a lot of ring time for a guy who's 26 years old. Number one, I've made that point a thousand times before. I, you know, it's good that he's getting ring time, but at some point, this begins to get burdensome if you're not getting out of these a little bit quicker. You want to give a guy experience like Sergio Pettis, but you want to be able to have a guy who can close the show, and that's really the problem for me. You know, the, they talked about all the good things that Emmanuel Sanchez does. He does a lot of really good things. He's a very talented fighter. He's a well-schooled fighter. There was one moment where you saw, um, you saw. Duke Rufus saying to him, move your feet in the clinch. They were in the clinch. He was sort of pressing Galvan up against the fence. And you watch uh, the feet of uh, uh, Sanchez begin to go back and forth. He's listening. He's, he's, he's responding. He's being told things, and he incorporates them, and he makes it a part of what he does. And he can attack. He can do a lot of different things. He is just never able to create a whole lot of danger with what he does. And there's no element of surprise. He never sets you up and then sneaks something behind it. Um, never effectively, and I mentioned this before on the on my uh, post fight show. He was throwing those kicks at the end of all his combinations, and what was Loro doing? You know, this every time, every time, every time, because they came from the same side and they always came to the head. He never varied it to the body, and the times he did throw a couple of body kicks um, at, at distance, they landed with effect. And he was the bigger guy. This was 149 pounds because he had missed weight. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, man, go back to that. This is working. Why are you going back to the head when every single time this guy is blocking it? Do something else. Create some kind of element of surprise. For me, what Sanchez does, he does so many things well, but what's frustrating about it is he's never able to switch it up on a dime and catch you. He's never able to, to set a trap, get you to step into it, and then finish you off. He's just able to see, oh, I'm, this is more or less working well. This is more or less getting the job done. I'm just going to keep doing it, 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 keep doing it. You know, there's no adaptation. There's no innovation in there. And I think that's really why he's winning and losing these fights, either by close split decision or decision to altogether. It's because there is a gap there 
between him and his opponent. Typically, he's on the right side of things. He is a good fighter. He just maintains the gap. Here's the opponent. Here's him. He never does anything to open it wide open. He never does anything to, to, to just blow it to pieces. He just maintains it. And so it can be really frustrating for a guy who you can see is so gifted, can do so well, well-schooled, young, hungry, the whole bit. You got to start incorporating some element. You got to start setting some traps for these guys because you, you can't beat all these guys like this. This is too hard on the body, too early in his career. He's going to grind himself to a pulp with injuries, or he's just going to lose fights where he shouldn't have lost because he just didn't develop that kind of natural skill. And that's like, yeah, part of that is natural, as I mentioned. But the other part is that you can incorporate those kinds of things. That is what's really missing in his game. Sergey Heratonov defeating Chase Gormley at 3:55 of the first round. Now I went back and I watched this fight. A couple more times, I thought it was a little hard on Sergey. I thought Sergey looked pretty good. You know, the commentators were talking up Chase Gormley's jab, and it was really good. But a couple things that I really noticed in the second time around. Number one, I thought uh, Haritonov's jab was way more effective. I don't know if it landed as much. Like if I just had a clicker and I was counting every time it landed. I don't know if it landed as much, but I know that when it landed, it was hurting Gormley a lot more than Gormley's jab was hurting Haritonov. That's the first thing. Number two, I think it was the motioning and the direction and the punch selection of Haritonov that forced Gormley to keep circling into the power hand of Haritonov. There were a couple times he was circling to the opposite side, and you saw Haritonov kind of angle off at times to prevent that, to force him to go a certain direction. And ultimately, remember, it was two right hands, one right cross, one uppercut that closed the show. But what we really noticed about Gormley was Gormley had... Um, Gormley was countering the jab a couple of times with a body kick that was really nice off his lead left leg. He didn't have to switch stance for it. He could just lean off center and throw it, and it was landing, and it was really sharp. I actually kind of liked that a lot. And when he combined that, he actually threw it, launched a jab, and then hit a right cross after it. Uh, and that was what that had hurt Heratonov at some point in sort of the middle of that fight. Now, Heratonov recovered, separated, and eventually closed the show because I think he's the heavier, more accurate hitter. But... Gormley had a couple of things that were nice, but for me, it was really the power behind the jab, the effectiveness of that jab, the direction he was able to move Gormley. And the one thing about Gormley's jab that really cost him late was he had his hand, his rear hand up kind of high. But when he threw the jab, he threw it, and rather than bringing it back, he brought it back to his waist every time. So what wound up happening was um, Heratonov was able to lean off center on the jab, knew that when it went back down, there would be no defense of it, and that's when he was able to time the right hand perfectly. There was no there was no defense after that jab. So to the extent Gormley was effective, to the extent Gormley was or you know um, frequent with the jab, and to the extent he was moving, he was doing okay. But once he got pressed up against that fence, hand dropped, and the right hand timed of Heratonov, player, that's... <laughs> That's all she wrote, you know. Um, so a nice showing there from Sergey Heratonov, actually. Noad Lahat at a catch rate of 148 pounds, defeating Lloyd Carter at 350 of the second round. Just a superior grappler doing his thing. Taking him out, nearly getting the head and arm control, or uh, head and arm triangle in the first round. Not quite able to close the show, but able to just get a takedown, cover position, pass at will. Nice, heavy, tight passing. You notice the knees kind of pinched up right inside the armpit and between the legs of uh, Carter when, when uh, Lahat was inside control. There were times he was able to pin the arm and then slide out with a knee cut pass, like just really effective heart. Just, just two different levels of grappling there. And Lahat, you know, I don't know how far he can go in that featherweight division. You got Strauss, Pitbull, Curran, Sanchez. Um, you got now Galvan. You've got a lot of guys in that featherweight division that are pretty nasty, so I don't know exactly where he fits in. But um, 
clearly much better than Lloyd Carter in this context. And then Steve Cazola, how about old Thunder Beast, huh? Defeating Jake Roberts at 28 seconds of the opening round. Now we're going to look more at this in the second round, but I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I, Steve Cazola is interesting. I don't know how good he is, man. I don't know, but listen to his record. This is what he's done so far. Okay, 27 years old, fighting out of Naperville, Illinois, wherever the hell that is. Uh, he's a purple belt in uh, jiu-jitsu. He's a black belt in taekwondo. Finds out a team quest, Oceanside Jiu-Jitsu. So his debut was in July of 2013. He stopped Ramon Hernandez via guillotine choke in the second round. Second fight, he beats Tommy Gavin via TKO in March of 2014. That was in the second round. Then he defeats Eddie Gonzalez via TKO 50 seconds into the first round. Then he beats Danny Morales Jr. via KO at under two minutes into the first round. These are all through 2014. 2015, he makes his Bellator debut against Jonathan Rivera. He KOs him at 125 of the second round. Then he fights Ian Butler, and also in 2015, he KOs him in less than a half a round into the first round. Then he fights Matt Church at World Series of Fighting 30. I'm not sure how that happened. Uh, knocks him out in under two minutes into the first round, and then he has he fights Jake Roberts and beats him the way he does. Now, I'm not here to tell you Jake Roberts is the most credentialed opponent I've ever seen. He doesn't have a Wikipedia entry. In fact, none of the opponents that he has fought do. There's an open question of how good he actually is. All I'm saying is, if someone... Maybe these guys aren't that great, but this is the way you're supposed to beat guys who aren't that great, right? It doesn't mean necessarily he's the best thing since sliced bread, Steve Cazola, but if he is very good, this is how he'd be beating these guys, if that makes sense, right? So we need to see him against somebody more credentialed, but I don't know. I find the kid interesting. His nickname is amazing. He had a strong showing. He was confident on the mic. Uh, and there were some things she did in this fight that I really enjoyed. So, without further ado, there was nothing on the prelim card of note. Without further ado, let's take a look at what the footage shows us from Steve Cazola's win over Jake Roberts. A couple of things he did real nice. Let's talk more about that now. We'll keep this nice and short. I just thought that there wasn't necessarily a whole lot on this uh, Bellator card to really break down, but i got to tell you, Steve Cazola... You know, we didn't see a whole lot of him, and I'm not saying we saw him against the best competition the world's ever seen, but for what he was given, well, he showed up, didn't he? Looked great. Uh, and the one thing he did I thought that was great, well, two things really, but one in particular was that uh, check hook or the sidestep hook that you see. So what you're going to see actually is, and forgive this down here, I'm going to use a little bit of um, quick time to do this, but here you've got Roberts. Jake Roberts is going to come in a linear way. And he's going to extend himself and leave a ton of openings. As a consequence, it's going to allow Cozzola to land a check hook and then angle off, or a sidestep hook and then angle off. And I really like this for a lot of reasons. You know, when a guy is coming in straight, um, extending himself as he and, and Roberts does both of them, it gives you an opportunity. What's interesting is about the distance on this one. Roberts wasn't all that close, but he was leaning so far forward. Number one, he didn't have great defense. And number two, all that weight was on his front leg, which kind of made him slow. But he was far enough away where a real check hook would be nice and tight right in front of you. Your arm doesn't really get extended out like a, like a left hook where you whip way out in front of you. Those are powerful, but it takes a lot of time and energy to just to generate momentum to, crook, uh, to, to, to uh, crack someone like that. A check hook where a guy's coming in, you're sidestepping him, is a quick bang. It's a, it's a, it's a, you're throwing it and you're stepping out, right? And you get that here, but it's a little bit of a mix of the range. You'll see that it's not quite where, you know, his elbow is out in front of him in a normal check hook. It's a mix between that and extending all the way out, but that's what he had to do to, to crack this guy. So let's watch this move here. Here comes Roberts. Watch. 
All right, let's see this. Does a little fake uh, kick there. Now look at look at Roberts' stance. You know his weight is still down, but you can see it's going to be a little bit more forward, especially if he steps. There's very little weight on his back leg versus Cazola, who's a little bit more upright, which allows him, I think, to move around a little bit better and a little bit more forthrightly. So here we go. Now he's backing him up. I mean, look at how wide that stance is, and he's still forward. I'm sorry, he's still the weight is still centered down for Roberts, but you can tell if he steps out even further, it's going to be all on the front leg. He's going to have no ability to react. So you see he's, he's way down, he's going to step in, he's going to feint with the jab, and right away there's that lead left hook, it's a little far out, it's almost, almost like a raising hook, almost like, you know, uppercut raises someone's chin up and then you fire the other hand to crack him, it's kind of like that, because then that comes, you see, and you notice, look how Roberts never really is in range properly, he's wanting to fire so far away, Cazola can just time him coming in, Look where Roberts' punch is. It doesn't even come close. Versus now Cazola has raised his forehead up. Kaboom. And then cracks him there. So we go forward. And, and here we go have the beginning of the end. Watch Roberts. He's going to step forward. Look at how low he is. Look at how... Look at this. I mean, he's far away. He didn't set it up. Look at his weight. It's not just forward. It's to the left of him a little bit. Like he's stepping almost towards the Dave and Buster sign. Not quite. He's stepping in between the Dave and Buster sign and the sign behind the feet of Cazola. It's almost in that direction because I guess he wants to get out of the way of the right hand, but he doesn't get nearly far enough away. You know, Frankie Edgar tried to do this on Jose Aldo to, you know, moderate effect in their second fight, but he would never do it from this far away. You got to get in a little bit, you got to set it up. Watch, he just goes for a cross. And watch what Cazola does here. This is great. Cazola just down parries it. And look what look where I mean it looks like Roberts is running. Look at Cazola's eyes. He sees it exactly. Boom. Catches him dead to rights, man. Now watch the right foot of Cazola swing as he steps out at a 90 degree angle like that. Look at that. Now the interesting part about this combination is that you can do it and you can finish it with a leg kick, you can finish it with all kinds of things. The left hook here is so good from Cazola that it knocks Roberts off of his feet. Watch this. Bink. Look at that. Sends him crashing to the mat. <laughs> that was a that was beautiful. One more time. Look at this. Normally you can crack a guy like this and then you have to get out of the way with that angle step. And then you can throw a leg kick to the leg. You know, you can throw, you can leg kick him. You can body kick him. You can head kick him. You can throw. You can throw a, a counter left hook, step, and then throw a, a straight right. Or, or you can do so many different things. He the down, watch the down parry with the right hand. This is great, by the way. Here comes the down parry. Bam! Crushes him. Now this is what I mean when I said it wasn't like a super tight uh, left hook from Cazola. It's the circumstances. I'm not criticizing Cazola. I'm just saying he had to adapt on the fly. It wasn't all the way out in front of him. It wasn't nice and tight either. But it's just enough tight with just enough of a step. Now look where he's he has pivoted there. What appears to be you know almost 90 degrees really. Certainly more than 45. 45 and 90 is what you really want to do. No more than 90, right? And you can do it either way depending on what happens. But um, Roberts crashes to the map. Now we're here. This is the other part I, I liked about what Cazola did. When he finished him, it wasn't just that the shots were powerful. When he finished him, it wasn't just that the shots were accurate. When he finished him, look at how nice and in tight Cazola is. A lot of guys, when they get a guy finished, they want to almost step back a little bit. 
and the other opponent could be, let's say, against the fence or something. So they can get the full extension on their punches. But when that happens, you're basically allowing the other guy to swing a wild hook and do that as well. They don't feel crowded. Now, they might be covering up a little bit, but they know they can just wing a shot over the top. Maybe something happens. Maybe they cover up. Maybe it even gives them distance to angle out. Watch what Kozola does. He doesn't do any of that. Not only does he go to the head and the body, right? So Roberts doesn't know where the shots are going, and he's feeling it everywhere. But he stays in tight, so he doesn't open himself to the same kind of counterhooks. He crowds the space, so Roberts thinks he's getting covered up. Or Robert thinks he needs to cover it up, excuse me. And he just never lets him out of this phone booth type of scenario. Watch this. Boom, hard uppercut inside. Watch how close he gets here. Left hook. Now, that one's at the extended end. But look at this. Look at how close they are. Now, he misses a couple here, but look at Roberts. He just doesn't know where to go. So are they coming fast? Are they coming accurately? Are they coming hard? All those things. But the distance here is what really sells it for me. He stays nice and in tight on him. Boom, boom, boom. Look at that. Oh, that right hook would just crushed him. He's trying to get out of the way. He's just covering up, leans right into it, crushes him. And then, of course, he just follows him on the way down here with that left hook. Bang right hand. I mean, that's the one that closed the show for sure. And that's all she wrote. Let's look at this from a different angle. Okay, let's take a look at that left hook one more time. Here you see Roberts coming in. Look how far away he is. Lowers his level. No setup. Just dives in with the right. Not close enough. Watch the down parry. Boom. And then watch the left hook. Crack. Perfect. Now watch the right foot and the right leg of Kozola angle out. Left foot stays in place. Bang. Now, he steps back a little bit here just to react to the moment. But that is some really, really nice stuff. Now, let's watch this finish. Dirty boxing. Look how in tight he is. Never lets Roberts get away. Boom. Nice inside uppercut. Stays right on him. Not really reaching too much with his punches. As he gets away, take a look here before the screen changes. As he moves back to the fence, Kozola covers distance to give... Roberts very few angles to escape if he stepped back and was winging punches his chin might be in the air it gives Robert space to throw a bigger shot as well and to angle out here he didn't have that when he tried to angle out he ate that big right hand so here we go here comes Roberts on top I mean look at this flying hammer fist almost and good on him by the way not hitting to the back of the head a lot of guys would have been tempted to do so here we go he's gonna stand let's watch Big John, good job not stopping this, by the way. Boom, hard shot. Here comes that uppercut. Bink. And watch Kozola cover distance. Catching openings, firing hard, setting his angle. Watch, he sets the angle here. He comes to the head. To the head. Misses a little bit here. Closes space. Gets nice and tight. Throws around the gloves. Inside. Over the top. Boom. Stays on him. Bang. Bang. Look at that. I love how close he is the whole time here. Let's take a look at this one more time. In reverse. Roberts looks like he's doing the uh, moving like Bernie dance. Now he does actually do a little more head hunting here than I thought. I thought some of these were rib roasters. Not exactly. As we back up here just a little bit. Okay, let's start here. Here he chases him with that left hook. 
Finds a space down the middle. Look how nice and tight he is. Look, his face is almost touching the gloves of Roberts. Comes over the top there. Going side to side here. Catches him. Roberts is trying to find a place to fall. Boom. Up the middle. Doesn't quite get it there, but stays on him. Doesn't give him an exit. Gotta love that. Gotta love that from Steve Cazola. Nice stuff there from Thunder Beast. So it was a great check hook. What they call a sidestep hook. Executed on the fly. Great vision downfield the whole time, as I call it, like a quarterback. And then great finishing by getting up in a guy's grill, not giving him an exit to escape, not letting him feel space to counter, and throwing nice, hard, accurate, tight, fast punches. Thunder Beast, I don't know how good he is, but I'm looking forward to finding out. And last, but certainly not least, let's take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. Finally, another big UFC event. Man, it's been since literally a month ago since we had a really big UFC fight. So I'm not saying these are the biggest fights in the world, but they're big enough to get me to be interested. Your mileage may vary. Uh, this Saturday, April 8th, at the Key Bank Center in Buffalo, New York, UFC 210. In the main event, defending his UFC light heavyweight title, Daniel Cormier faces Anthony Johnson for the second time. In the co-main event, boy, this fight could not be more high stakes than it is. Wow. You got Chris Wyvin coming in off of two terrible losses, fighting Gagard Musasi, who's never been better on a tremendous win streak, and now fighting on the last fight of his contract, as he revealed on my show on Friday. So, huge, huge fight in that co-main event. Cynthia Calvijo returns to action. You recall she had that back take from the Anaconda choke against Pearl Gonzalez. Tiago Alves at welterweight, taking on Patrick Cote. And then the card opens with a lightweight bout between Charles Oliveira, and Will Brooks, so that should be kind of interesting. On your Fox Sports 1 prelim card, the return, ladies and gentlemen, of Miles Fury Jury against Mike Dellatore. Don't sleep on Mike Dellatore. He's very good. Kamaru Usman taking on Sean Strickland. That's a fun fight. Charles Rosa versus Shane Burgos. And then Patrick Cummins versus Jan Blockowitz. That, of course, is a light heavyweight contest. Four fights on your Fight Pass card. Gregor Gillespie taking on Andrew Holbrook. Josh Emmett versus Des Green. I think this is the UFC debut for Des Green. Caitlin Shukagian taking on Irene Aldana. And then Janelle Lausa taking on Magomed Babulatov. So, uh, 13 fights on this card. There's a lot to chew on for next week, including whatever else happens. So, um, thank you guys so much for watching. If you have any questions, you may email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Please subscribe to the MMA Fighting channel. Give this video a thumbs up. Share it around. I appreciate you guys watching very much. We'll be back next week with a much more robust Monday morning analyst. And until that time, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the fights.